it definitely started as a dispatch office which was like one person in the dispatch office which kind of became an officer in a police station it kept a lot of that dispatch phone calls and things like that but originally it was this dispatch idea we even toyed around like making it like a ufo situation and things like that originally and then it quickly evolved into this kind of mythology with the a manson-esque family Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. Remakes and reimaginings get a bad rap. Though there have been many lousy ones, people still puzzle over Gus Van Zandt's Shot for Shot Cycle remake. There are also many that are now classics. John Carpenter's The Thing, David Cronenberg's The Fly, Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, Gore Verbinski's The Ring, Willie Malone's House on Haunted Hill, and Zack Snyder's Dawn of the Dead. All inspired takes on classic films. What makes these examples work, whereas others, here's looking at you, Elm Street Remake, feel like tired retreads? It seems like it has a lot to do with a filmmaker who has a new lens to see the story through. Carpenter didn't just rely on the special effects, though they sure are special, for his take of the thing. Cronenberg wasn't content to just rely on a cooler-looking fly. Kaufman knew it would take more than bigger body snatcher crowds. You get where I'm going with this. There's a connection between the filmmaker and the material for all these films that's evident in the film itself. Our guest today can be added to the list of filmmakers whose reimagining works because there's a clear connection between the filmmaker and the world he is creating. Plot twist. He's reimagining his own film. In 2014, a movie about a rookie cop's night at a soon-to-be shuttered police station that became a descent into hell became a sleeper hit. The film was Last Shift, and it has just been reimagined in the form of the new film Malum by its creator, our guest in this episode, writer-director Anthony de Blasi. When I asked him about returning to the world he created with Last Shift, Anthony told me, I think the remakes that work are the ones that are really treated like reimaginings. They took the core of what was cool in the original and expanded on it, almost as if it were a sequel to the original. What Aliens did for Alien. That's what we wanted to do with Malum. Explore what we couldn't in the first one because of resources, but also dive deeper into a mythology we barely touched on in the original film. Build on the elements that work while also improving on the ones that didn't. Anthony also delves into the years he worked closely with horror icon Clive Barker. How dealing with MPAA interference and studio meddling is basically trial by fire, and adapting one of Barker's stories for his film, Dread. Our talk with Anthony is a proper deep dive covering all of his genre films, so we will be dropping it in two parts. So, remember, nothing is what it seems, and the darkness is going to be staring back at you while we explore the work of Anthony de Blasi. Hey, Anthony. Hey, Kevin. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate it. Of course, looking forward to it. You better have some good questions. I think so. I think so. Did you listen to every other interview I ever have done on every I think other I did. movie? I think I did. Okay. Actually. I think I did. You're like, uh, they, they asked that question seven years ago. I can't do that. 
do you remember sort of a, a pivotal point where and, and like, you know, a bit about what was going on, like how old you were or where you were in life when you were like, you know what, I'm going to be a filmmaker? Yeah, I mean, I think I always wanted to be. I, you know, definitely when I, I was definitely in five, six years old, you know, because I always wanted, I always liked to watch like the making of stuff. And back then it was really hard to see making of stuff. You know, you'd have to like watch PBS and things like that. You'd catch like the making of Star Wars. It was always that kind of stuff that really excited me. And usually it was, um, usually it was like effects work and miniatures and things like that. That was like my earliest days of, well, this is awesome. I'd love to do that stuff. And even when I moved to LA, I thought about interning with an effects house. I, I contacted a few people and they just weren't like looking for interns at the time. Because when I, when you get out here, you're like, geez, everyone's trying to like get into movies, but I'm like, I could, I had a skill set with makeup and I was like, I could like try to get into special effects. Cause that's like tangible. That's like a thing, you know, it's not like ethereal, like directing and producing. And, you know, I write, I write more now because it's also like a tangible skill. So you moved to LA when you were like 22 and you were going, okay, 22. Go be, did you want to be a director? Was that the objective? You know, I, I, it quickly became that. I don't know. I think, um, you know, when you're in film school, you're doing a lot of different things. You kind of do, a, you know, kind of decide what you like. And, and then in the program, when you're out here, you're interning. I was interning at Marvel with um, Kevin Feige and, and Avi, Avi and Ari Arad were both there. And that was my internship. That's when they were still together and they had just made the first Spider-Man movie, which was in post-production. One of my favorite movies, Predator. On the v- mm-hmm. on the VHS, after Jesse Ventura dies, and, and this is one of those moments I'm like, I'm losing my mind. Because <laughs> I remember it so vividly. Because when you're a kid, you're like, these violent bits, you know, they really like, that's those things that you kind of wait for. And you're like, wow. You know, when he gets his chest blown out and he's, you know, after he's dead, Schwarzenegger and I think it's Carl Weathers or Mac, they like come up to him, his body, and they flip him over and you see this crater. And I always thought it was, it was always stood out to me because you could really see the prosthetic effect because you have this huge crater and then you could see the, Ventura's actual chest. So oh, okay. so you could see it was like a flawed kind of effect, but still very effective. It was very gruesome. But I always remembered it because you could see the flesh where the chest and the prosthetic met. And right. then when when it came out on Blu-ray or because I even think the earliest versions of the DVD had this in it. And then when it came out on on the more the like the special edition DVD. Mm-hmm. And then Blu-ray and now 4K, it's it's gone. They they crop oh, that. Really? You only see like the top of his body. They crop that uh-huh. out. I was like, I'm I know this exists. So I found yeah. like <laughs> I found the still, you know, find like I found that still. Yeah. I'm like, there it is. That's the shot. I've been but and now you lose it. 
because of the format. Huh. I'm sure the director yeah, too, I, or I'm sure they were like, that doesn't look good. Get rid of it. Take it out, take please. It out please. Yeah. But yeah. in my head, it well, looks the, amazing. That, that kind of tinkering always sort of can be irritated. I mean, like a more dramatic example, but I remember when Spielberg went back in an ET and he took all the guns out and put in walkie talkies. Uh, but you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, that, that's not necessary. We all can contextualize, you know, yeah. there's no, uh, it, it, and it kind of, to me, it's like, I have this memory of that, you know, the urgency of that, like they're willing to pull guns on kids. This is serious business. Yeah, exactly. Not, doesn't work as well when it's like, they're willing to talk into walkie talkie. Yeah, it's serious a totally business. different like, scene. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So I was getting into, I was going to ask you, like you said that your, your folks were, were horror fans. Um, do you remember sort of some of the early horror films that made an impression on you? Do you remember what they were? Yeah, I mean, well, the first horror movie I remember watching, I mean, besides like the Universal Monster movies, stuff like that, for sure. The, the Universal Monster stuff was definitely, you know, and like Night of the Living Dead, like those kind of movies. But um, Creepers was the first thing that I had watched. Um, right, right. That's the Donald Pleasance one, isn't it? The the Dario Argento movie, the, uh, also called Phenomena. Phenomena Jennifer is, the, Connelly? Yeah, is the real version. Jennifer Connelly. What did they call yeah. it? Was it? Yeah, it was Creepers. It was uh, Creepers. We rented Creepers that, was like, the VHS. VHS. Yeah. Yeah. Was the VHS title. I really liked that VHS cover, but um, that was like one of the first horror movies I remember we we rented like right when we got a VCR and the first nightmare on Elm street too, definitely left an impression on me. And, you know, I, how, when did that come out? Like 82? The first one. Yeah. 84. 84 or 82, 84, maybe. So I was like, you know, we should know this five or five or six when I saw that. Five years old, probably. But definitely, you saw it in the theater. Like, we saw it when it came out on VHS. Okay, came out in eighty four. Eighty four, yeah. We saw that when it came out on VHS, and Creepers was before that. But those are like right. the two movies that I really remember being really young seeing. <clears throat> and you know, Creepers we used to watch. Great. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, that movie's crazy. We we watched it again yeah. recently, and the, the, the monkey, the chimp man, it's yeah. some, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, it is. It's genius. It kind of continues my motif of like pretty much any movie Donald Pleasance is in is going to have some charm to me. Like he's just, uh, I love yeah. him. He's he's the best. Yeah. Um, Did you like? His and I love that he plays the scene. Malcolm McDowell or the or the new one? The new one. Yeah. Um I did. I thought the flashbacks in Halloween Kills were the best thing about that movie. They were. Because yeah, I think for sure. Yeah, I think flashbacks are tough a lot of the time when I see flashbacks. It's like they're always kind of done the same way. And very few directors take like license to try new things with sort of the flashback model that's been so established. Um but I was kind of like wow they really nailed these like it felt like the original film it, they really nailed yeah. down the look and the, the locations and all that stuff of the first film and the make you know the donald pleasant's makeup was really cool 
Yeah, which was way cooler than doing it with CGI. Yeah, much cooler. See? Back to Tarkin. Why didn't they just use makeup? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And get the guy that played Donald Pleasance in Halloween Kills. Um, yeah. Um, so do you remember, like you said, so Night of the Living Dead, Creepers, did those movies, were you scared of them when you saw them? Do, do you remember if they freaked you out? I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street, I was. You know, I remember that, like, affecting me at that age and kind of giving me nightmares. And... The Shining, I definitely saw at a really young age and which freaked me out. But after that, I don't, I think I got kind of immune to it. I became pretty obsessed with Freddy Krueger at a young age. And, you know, I remember in like third grade when Nightmare on Elm Street 3 came out and I was making all these like paper dioramas of like the sets in Nightmare on Elm Street 3. <laughs> It was, I, you know, so clearly that movie really affected me in like a positive way in the sense that I think it was, I don't know, I, I still like really like Nightmare on Elm Street 3. I like the first three Nightmare on Elm Streets a lot. I'm one of those rare people that think Nightmare on Elm Street 2 are, is like kind of the gem of the series in a lot of ways because it has, I mean, it's, you know, it's crazy it's a crazy movie but it has spectacular effects i love i love the makeup design that like the hag design of freddie in that movie and and his contacts and and it has an awesome score so much better than the first movie the first movie a lot of that score is really cheesy synth yeah and the stuff with the bus is really cool yeah part two I mean that movie's nuts, but I was thinking it was know. funny. I, we had Jack, yeah, we had Jack Shoulder, the director of two, on the show a little while back, and uh, it's so funny because that movie has such an interesting. It's I almost feel like the story of the making of that movie and what that movie is to people is become in some ways more memorable to people than the movie, which is sort of too bad because I think it, as you just pointed out, it's a pretty good movie. Yeah, I didn't watch that new documentary that came out about it. Scream Queen. I haven't seen yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that. Did you see it? I did see it. I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's like Jack Shoulders swears that, you know, he didn't overthink that. He just shot the script he was giving. It was like, this is the movie you're making. And he went, okay, this is what I'm doing. And it had all that in it. So he just went and made the picture the way it was written. And uh, yeah, and I can kind of believe that. Um, I don't believe the stuff of like the writer who was like, there was no intended stuff about, you know, homosexuality or, or, or coming out of the closet. I'm like, that's bullshit. If you've seen the movie, how could <laughs> you possibly? Bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but w- I, I don't know. I don't know or don't remember the story of the casting. Like if, if that actor was cast with a, uh, if it was a straight actor, would it have played differently? You know, I, don't I don't know. I don't it's know it's an interesting who, question, right? Because you're was what? involved. Yeah. Mark Patton, who played the part, who the documentary is basically about, um, he, you know, th- I think that's that's an interesting thing because the director, Jack Shoulder, says that Mark was cast uh, because he had a certain sort of vulnerability uh, that, that they were looking for in the character. That the character was written as being a sensitive young man and he was, you know, and he said, so that's, we cast this actor that seemed to embody those qualities, but Mark Patton wasn't out when he was cast. So 
Jack Schuller's like, we didn't know he was gay. We just thought he seemed sensitive and there was, he was internalized and he was interesting. And I'm like, well, those are all qualities that someone could associate with a closeted gay man in many situations, right? So, sure. Um, you know what I mean? I, I, it's just, it's curious to me because that movie to this day has this significant sort of place in the hearts of, of you know, the, the, the gay audience folk who, who have seen it or, you know, all kinds of people from the LGBTQ community love that movie for being that. But I'm like, you know, it's interesting to hear the director be like, well, that was not what, what was intended. So it's weird that a movie can go I, I, on to have this other life, you know, uh, beyond what he, it was intended. He always says, yeah. I mean, and you spoke to him clearly. I mean, I think he really made a good a good movie. And, you know, that subtext probably makes it more popular today than it ever would have been. Um, but I never, you know, I, I never saw that as like a failed sequel. There's, I think where the movie no. bothered people is because he, they kind of turned the concept on its head too soon, maybe when he steps out of his dream and becomes kind of a vulnerable man um even though that happens in the first film at the end but but you know i think in a lot of ways it gets a bad rap but it has so many things that are so good about it yeah it's but it would be interesting to see if like you know if like Corey haim got cast in that part or something if it would have played differently i don't know i mean the lost boys is pretty gay uh, and yeah, and well, Joel, you know Joel Schumacher, but then you know that movie <laughs> is genius. <laughs> Everything about it is yeah, Joel Schumacher at his best. Yeah, at least in yeah, my yeah. opinion, no, I, it's, I true. Love it's Lost Boys. I think everybody does that. Grew up in the eighties. You, say, it's like you. I don't know. I know people who aren't even like horror buffs who love that movie. Yeah, it's very accessible. It's got. Yeah, and it has like this palpable sweaty quality to it. You know what I mean? You watch that movie, and everybody <laughs> looks sticky and sweaty and oversexed, and it's like it's a very <laughs> sexualized thing. Yeah, um, as all vampire uh, movies should be. I think so. Yeah, I th- people always bitch about vampires being sexy. I'm like, what's wrong with the? I don't mind them being sexy. Uh, that's never bothered me. I think it's okay to have sexy monsters. I mean, you know. Dracula was sexy. He started it. Totally. If you go back to the book, I went back to Dracula and read the book, like which I've read many times, but I read ba- the annotated version of it, you know, really dug into Dracula over the pandemic. And I was like, this character by design is all about repressed sexuality and, and freeing that up. And, you know, the, 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 the Harker character who's totally like this guy who's, you know, you look at the sort of homoerotic quality of like when he's shaving and Dracula comes yeah. in and starts like doting on him. And you're like, this is very like, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> and it works. It's great stuff. But it's impossible to sort of argue the, you know, that Dracula is a, a sexual being in, the, in that book. I mean, he's, you know, the whole love story aspect of it that's all in the book. And that's yeah. the definitive yeah. vampire book. And I know like I when 30 Days of Night came out and everybody was like, oh, this is what vampires should be like. I'm like, this is cool and it works. But, but you know, unless you're arguing that vampires shouldn't be like Dracula, um, I don't think there's a set rule on how vampires have to be. I mean, I like it's all interesting. I was gonna, I, projects. Me all vampire movies I'm down with. 
Oh, you're a vampire. And I never get sick of them. I never get sick of them. I mean, I was never like, I mean, I watched the Twilight stuff because of Jackson when I worked with him on Dread. I, you know, and I watched, you know, you once you kind of watch it, that first Twilight movie is kind of spectacular, like such a strange movie that she <laughs> made. It's such a bizarre movie, that first one. And you're kind of like, how did this happen? How did, you know, how did this like very popular <laughs> book franchise get turned into a movie with a, a fairly unknown cast? And it's almost kind of like a low budget indie. And then the second movie I actually think is quite good, like quite, quite well made. Um, who was the, right, the 30 Days of Night director made that, I believe. But all vampire movies I'm, I'm down with. Do you, is that like your, from the Universal era that you were talking about? Would you is that sort of was was Dracula your favorite? You know, no, he never was, and I still don't really watch Dracula that often. I, I did this year. My dad really likes Dracula and Bela Lugosi, but I've never been a big fan of that movie. I I really like because it it's kind of just it's one of those movies. It just like ends. It's like wait, where's the third act? What happened? Like <laughs> you know. It has some beautiful stuff in it for sure, but I'm not one that put it on. I always put on Creature of the Black Lagoon. I love The Wolfman, right. Invisible Man, and Frankenstein. Frankenstein, I really like Son of Frankenstein a lot. Um, those are like my go-to universal movies. Right. Creature of the Black Lagoon, I watch a lot. And Revenge of the Black Lagoon. Who do you think is the best Dracula so far of all the, the Draculas you've seen? Who's your favorite Dracula? Probably Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman. I'd have to say. Yeah. Which is probably everyone's answer. You know, at least in our generation. Or Frank Langella. A lot of people love Langella's Dracula. Yeah, Langella's really good too. He's a great actor. Mm-hmm. You know, so and I, you know, kind of lived and breathed horror at the time. I had a pretty wide knowledge of movies then so we were kind of really able to get along with that stuff that's funny that clive was like accessible so early into that process you'd think they'd sort of you know you'd have to go through some people before you would have met clive because they're like the first meeting like i could have been a psychopath right it's like (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's like i had never met them before Like just cut out the middle, man. We need we need somebody here. Yeah, and so we you probably by that point were pretty acutely aware of who Clive was in his body of work, and I'm gonna guess maybe yeah. you you read some of his books and stuff by that by that point. Yeah, well, you know, strangely, no, I had not read any of his books. You know, I I definitely had seen all his films, um, and then when I. Like the second I got into the company, I just consumed everything that he had ever written. I mean, I, you know, it's just you read everything in your free time. They had a big library and I would just take books and read everything he had ever written and, and then became very familiar with everything very quickly. Um, but yeah, at the time I had no, had never read any of his stuff. I saw him more as a filmmaker, you know, and he was kind of both equally, you know, more of an author first and foremost, and then also a painter. He had so much going on at one time. 
Was he accessible to you in terms? I mean, and I don't mean I know it was accessible physically, but but did you find him easy to get to know? And like, was he a, you know a, a, what sort of was Clive's disposition when you first met him and started to work with him? Yeah, for sure. I think when I was in that office, I would see him a lot. I mean, he was there writing in his in his main house, and then we had an office that was a separate house where I'd spent my time with Joe, and then the Joe and I eventually got an office in Hollywood to kind of get away from, you know, just anything that goes on at a house, like, you know, Amazon coming to the door, you know, things like that. Dogs um, barking. Yeah. And and Clive also had a lot of animals, uh, a lot of pets, which was great, but he, you know, but he was very excited. I got to know him really well in those early months quite quickly. And I would drive him around. I was kind of like, which, you know, Joe's like doing movie stuff and he's, he needs an intern, but then it's also like, well, Clive has a personal assistant to do whatever, like, you know, we're going to go get porn or something or go to the comic <laughs> shop or, you know, which we did every Wednesday, we'd go to the comic shop on Wednesday. Now it's like new, new comic day has changed since COVID. It's all different now, but back then it was every Wednesday, you know, you go get the new comics so we knew each other we'd hang out like that a lot was it a thing where you were cognizant at that sort of age of like sort of okay this is someone i can learn from and you know this is one of the sort of the masters of the the medium i want to work in like was that part of the appeal of getting in there and you know getting familiarized with with clive's body of work and sort of just you know thinking hey this could be a great mentor yeah 100 percent. it was i mean and that's what he became it was 100 percent that it's like when you're you have access to someone who has made, has created so many great things and had, had been in both the kind of indie system and the studio system. There was tons to learn from. They also had, it was also extremely busy. Um, like I was thrown into the fire with, with Joe and I was doing, I was taking meetings that like I had no business being in, but because they needed the help, <laughs> I was just thrown into it. You know, we were meeting, right you know, the heads of these studios, because that's the kind of Clive was those, that's who he'd meet. If we were taking a meeting with Clive or if Joe and I were just developing, he had projects set up at almost at every studio back then. And we were um, continuing to set things up because he had just done this Aberat book series before he had written anything. They sold it to Disney and it was like a really big, deal and that kind of opened the floodgates to set up clive's property at like fox and warner brothers and universal and and dreamworks and like kind of anywhere we could think of clive seems like such a strange fit with disney to me but well that's why i never got made but (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah but it was but you know if you've never read abrad it was certainly appropriate for them i remember you know i think i don't think i have read that particular book i read the thief of always seemed like something would be a little more yeah there at least which isn't but i love it's a great book yeah and has been developed a lot has gotten close to being made several times they have to make that book into a movie it's so cinematic it really is it really is and now like um there's been movies made that are reminiscent of that book even um 
night books on Netflix that just came out had that kind of element a little bit. Um, so there's yeah, I remember like seeing that movie, the Spider Spiderwick Chronicles or something I think it was called. Yeah, and that Spider-Wick reminded Chronicles. me of Thief of Always. Yeah, yeah, um, and Coraline, things like that. It's so now I feel like it. If it got made faithfully, people would probably be like, "Oh, this is a bit derivative," but it's not. It wasn't, you know. It was the kind of the first of it. And so, at what point did you go from interning to being on staff as a producer with Clive's company? Before I graduated, it was so. It was like literally. It must have been two and a half months when they offered me. I was at Marvel when they offered me the job. And I was like, yeah, okay. I'm, now I have a place to go to. So I went home, went back to Boston, did graduation, and then came right back and kind of jumped into work. Right. And was so was the first movie you did as a producer, was it The Plague? Is that the first one? 2006? Well, when I started there, they were doing Saint Center, but I didn't have like a credit on Saint Center. We, they were shooting that. Joe was on set in Canada. Can't remember if they shot that in like Montreal or Toronto. Um, but he was shooting that movie. And then we were, yeah, Plague would have been my first like credited. But I was an executive, right? So it's like we were developing like Damnation Game at Warner Brothers, I believe. And then we had like trying to get Weave World off the ground and trying to get thief of always off the ground and like there was a lot of executive work so there were so many tortured souls universal stuff like that before we actually got into production there was so much development and and then aberrant at disney like development stuff for so many years but yeah plague was my first like on set experience which was very i like i learned so much from from that movie kind of being in the trenches um hands-on that whole time it's funny i had d wallace on the show recently and d was in the plague and you worked with her on that film um yeah and i love the plague i think it's really kind of um it has this almost carpenter-esque feel to it it feels something he would have made in the 80s kind of and I've met up with other, you know, genre film critics stuff and, and a bunch of times that movies come up and I've been su- pleasantly surprised when other guys in the genre that are, you know, filmmakers or critics are like, yeah, that, that was a really great little movie, wasn't it? And I'm like, this movie is sort of has this weird little following that that almost seems yeah. to be more with horror filmmakers than horror fans per se. But um, but I know D said it was sort of a troubled production in the end that the problems in post or something like that in the end. Yeah, it was, I mean, you know, it was a great shoot. Um, It was one of those kind of typical productions where you're like, you weren't quite sure where the money was going, you know, some of the time, which caused some issues. But the shoot was pretty good. And D was awesome. You know, the cast was, was great. And, you know, that was the first time like a me like I love D Wallace and like she was on set and was like okay this is like working with these people you grow up with right watching and such an awesome experience and yeah in post is when it got messy it was like the 
director's cut of the movie had the studio had issues with it and you know eventually there wasn't a lot of compromise on that side from from Hal and I had gotten pretty close with Hal it was just it got it got messy but and I know that he kind of went on and tried to get this director version finished or he had like a um a kind of a website with it um but ultimately I don't really think the version that was released was much different you know I think it's about pacing and and trimming stuff it wasn't like there was a lot altered um than what we shot but i haven't i literally haven't watched that movie since it came out (laughs) i'll have to watch it again it has some great stuff in it i mean one vanderbeek is really great in it it's a really good performance yeah he was awesome he was awesome to work with on set he was great I feel like, you know, he didn't really even get a shot because people saw him in a Clive Barker because Clive's name was over the title. And then they see this horror movie and it's, you know, and they're like, it's fucking the guy from Dawson's Creek. Like, it was kind of like, you know, it was that thing where I think he was still close enough to that, to that part and that, that, that series that, that people didn't give him a shot. Well, in, um, what was that movie? Man, I can't remember. I really liked. Rules of Attraction. Rules of Attraction. Yeah. He was so good in that movie. Great. Great. That's like, yeah, that's the part that really like set him apart. From, yeah. He gets to sort of a Patrick Bateman S character in that movie. Sort of an American psycho. Cause they were thing, brothers. Yeah. Right. That, yeah. That's he right. literally plays the brother of Patrick Bateman. Yeah. That's right. That's is cool, that in the like, film? I know that's thing. in the book, but is it in the movie? It is. He, cause he calls is Patrick it? in the movie. He, oh, okay. there's a phone call. He's, he's on a, um, a payphone with Patrick. It's sm- oh, it's such okay. a small thing, but if you if you know, then That's you funny. know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I I thought you know that the the film has this great kind of uh, that. I remember I think it's John Fallon who's the critic for his Arrow in the Head and Joe Blow that whole website. He, I remember talking to him about it at the AFM, and it was just not long after it came out. And I said, "Hey, did you see this movie that play?" He was like, "Was that great?" And I was like, "Oh!" And that's when I started to notice. You know, that there were so few people I knew that were like just sort of moviegoers who had seen it. But so many guys that make films or were in the industry in some capacity caught on to that movie on some level. And yeah. so it's kind of fascinated me. I mean, there's very little to read about it or, you know, but it's like you can't even get it on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD. Um, and that was an, another question I had for you. It's like all the films that you guys made at that time, like have any of them made it onto Blu-ray? Like are they caught up in, in moratorium at some studio or something i mean the only one that's on i mean you know midnight midnight me trains on blu-ray right they're all on blu-ray like i don't know if plague is but they're all on blu-ray internationally you know you can get international blu-rays but not a lot of them were released on blu-ray in the states besides like midnight me train and i think book of blood was released but yeah dread never got a blu-ray release which was kind of a bummer you know, you could get like on, you know, the HD version is on iTunes and stuff. You can get it on streaming, the high res. But um, yeah, the Blu-ray was never. When I was at, when we did Extremity, Epic had talked about maybe doing, kind of getting the rights and doing a release of Dread on Blu-ray, but that all kind of fell apart. Right. 
And it was interesting because when I went back to prepare this interview and I watched The Plague and I watched Midnight Me Train and I was thinking, like, I remembered you inviting me to a screening of Midnight Me Train. It was an early screen. I don't even know if it was the final cut of the movie that went into theaters because I always swore that there was stuff that I that was different when I saw it in the theater later. Did you come to the test screening? I might have. I might have because I was living in Los Angeles at the time and you said, hey, you want to come see this movie I produced? And um it's from one of Clive's books. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. And I went and, uh, and I, I remember this is like a, this is sort of what throws me back. It was, I remember coming out to you after we were talking about the film and you were asking what I thought. And I was like, that lead actor is great. He's, he's going to do stuff. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, isn't he great? <laughs> it's like Bradley, I know Bradley Cooper. Who knows? Yeah. I think people have heard of him now. Yeah. He's done some uh, things and it was funny because yeah, I've always sworn, though, that there was different stuff in that version that I saw. So it must have been a test screening, I think. It must have been the early, like, we were looking for feedback. It probably was, because they cut so much out of that movie. That was, a again, it was like oh, a did troubled. Because P- Peter Block had left Lionsgate, and that was one of his films. You know, it was around the same time like Joseph did Re- Repo. The Joseph Drake came also, in, right? Yeah. And he just had a different mandate for the studio. But Lakeshore, you know, and I've talked about Midnight, you know, Clive talked about Midnight Me Train a lot when this was going down. But essentially, some of the executives, the head of Lakeshore didn't want to make a monster movie. And we had already made like a monster movie, you know, so they ended up cutting out so much of the third act where it was kind of revealed with the creatures and and the the father character which was another large um creature we had on uh, in the scene i don't know did you see a version that had anything like that in it I remember seeing a version where in the third act, there's more of this. It's sort of like an eldritchy Lovecraftian almost type of horror that that shows up at the end. There's this creature. And then when you see it now, the ending is much more kind of evasive and and you're kind Mm -hmm. of, you know, there's just quick cuts of things. And it, 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 you know, and maybe a sort of general audience wouldn't be as attuned to this. But when I watched it recently and I showed it to my husband and we were watching it, and I was like, you know, I can feel compromises in the edits the in the last yeah. chunk of this movie. You could feel it. You know what I mean? It's you could feel it. Yeah, we had it. I mean, we had it, and we had this whole sequence. You know, Leslie Bibb. You know, spoiler alert: uh, when she dies at the end, you know, she's like laying on this pile of bodies, and this creature comes down and picks her up, and he like bites her in half. And and just this shower of blood rains down on Bradley Cooper's character, and it you know it was kind of like kind of like the rain sequence from the Evil Dead remake. Like we went through so much blood of this this kind of metamorphosis that the character's taking. He's just being right baptized in blood, and it's it's too bad that stuff never went in the movie because it was it, it built to that you know it was meant to be that. Yeah, I read a quote from Joseph Drake where he said that he greatly disliked Midnight Me Train. I was like, oh, good. He greatly disliked it. Also known as hate. He also yeah. known as hate, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, and I also read that he kind of hacked down the release schedule from the film from playing like theatrically to like these kind of budget theaters. Is that true? Yeah, it was a wide th- theatrical. It was supposed to come out in the, in May. Um, and the trailer kind of dropped with Rambo um, when that came out. And then they pushed it to the fall and then they removed it from the schedule. But because of contractual obligations, they had to put it in theaters. And because of contractual money obligations, they had to make sure it didn't make any money. So they put it in dollar theaters. So because if you, you know, if it made a certain amount of money, it would have triggered like payments to this to like Universal and and certain the studio. So they uh, deliberately hijacked the release of the film, basically. They did, yes, they did. That's business. That's That's business. That's what happens. That now, from your standpoint, because you were like how old when you were working on that project? You were early twenties, mid twenties, something like that. I would maybe like 26, 25, 26 right. at the time. So were you like, this is, you know, a mess, but also kind of, this is an interesting exercise for me because you're kind of seeing on the ground level, like how movies get fucked with. <laughs> I mean, I think at the time there was no good news. About it. <laughs> I think it was all pretty devastating because it had taken so long to, <coughs> to get Midnight Me Train made um, and get, you know, kind of a good release because one of the hard parts is like when we did Aberat, when Aberat got set up, it really changed the landscape and development because everyone was like, they wanted Clive material, but then when they had Clive material, they were like, this is pretty dark and bizarre. So the development process was very tough. Um, so getting Midnight Me Train to where it was, was like, all right, okay, now we're on a roll. This is going to be, the start of these books of blood movies. And that's where we introduced midnight picture show okay. as being kind of his books of blood films. So how did, what was sort of the wind down of your time working with Clive and, and that team on the, on those, on those projects? When did you sort of, we, well, after I made dread, when I directed dread, we, you know, had a bunch of stuff in development and things just didn't, get off the ground i think like i think it was all a reverberation of midnight meat train you know the funding kind of dried up because that didn't get the release it was supposed to um and you know we were developing like pig blood blues which i was going to direct and then and then i went off and made casadega so that kind of took me out of that side of things for a while and then we made missionary and that was just a it was just a, you know, but while we were making Missionary, we were still like developing like Damnation Game, who like Anton Fuqua was attached to Damnation Game. And I had written the most current draft of it. And, you know, that was looking really promising. And then um, the execs left at Phoenix Pictures and it kind of threw it into a tailspin. And then after that, you know, I worked with, on, with Clive on some comic book stuff, but but besides that, most Joe was no longer at the company. He had gone on, on to like other producing work. So it just didn't have anyone pushing these these projects up the hill anymore. So that kind of stuff just kind of tapered off. But you know, a damnation game went on for quite a while. 
into into those years. I I don't know when exactly, maybe to like 2013 or something. And what was sort of the, uh, you know, from that time that you spent working on those pictures as a producer and as an executive and stuff, like, can you pinpoint some of the, like, the major things that you think you took from that, you know, on the projects you did after as a, as a director? Like, were there, can you think of sort of a few of the things you're like, yeah, like, I really learned that on, you know, Midnight Meat Train or whatever? Well, yeah, I mean, I think on every movie you learn it's like a trial by fire. I mean, Plague was certainly, I, I think, my biggest learning curve because it was, the, you know, the, besides college, it was the first time I was on a real production and working actively on a production. And getting, and getting paid. <laughs> yeah. And getting paid, yeah. I mean, I was even doing like some second unit shooting on that movie. So it was a huge learning curve and the politics involved with the producers and things like that. And, you know, working with, you know, watching how work with the DP and stuff. And then, like, it's interesting because it's two different worlds of the studio stuff being so heavily involved in the studio world for, like, the first 10 years of my career. But then when you're in the studio world development for so long, you just, you're so eager to make a movie. So then you start kind of doing smaller movies to make movies, even Midnight Meat Train, which was probably like 15 million with, it was almost put together like an independent film. Um, and and then we had financing from the UK and we made Books of Blood and Dread in the UK, but we were making movies and having much more control of them. Um, so, and Dread was a great experience. And that being my first directing gig, it was just, there was so much preparation involved and, and I had such a supportive team on that movie. So it was a really good experience shooting that and kind of having the time to do it the way we wanted to. But yeah, I don't know. It's hard, you know, you learn. Midnight Meat Train is definitely where I, people have a hard time when you tell them, oh, they didn't release this movie because of, politics and they're like yeah but it costs like almost 20 million <laughs> and like yeah that's not it doesn't matter it doesn't matter i think that's so hard for people to sort of get their head around right? it just is because it doesn't seem like it makes any sense it's like you have a movie it's sitting there you could put it out and why wouldn't you want it to succeed like i think to, to, to most people that, that that doesn't add up yeah yeah well Probably, probably doesn't, probably didn't to you at the time either. <laughs> what the nah, fuck is yeah, going right, on exactly. Here? <laughs> I don't think it did. Yeah, I don't think it did at the time either. But that stuff happens all the time. You know, it's not uncommon, especially when there's a change in direction at the studio. Right. You know, they're looking yeah. at and, the big picture, the macro. Like, what's the studio message? Right. And was Clive sort of? You know, did you see him at that time? Did he act because he was sort of the big name umbrella of all this stuff, right? It was Clive Barker's name that went over all these titles. Did Clive sort of end up in a de facto position sort of trying to fend off studio interference and help, you know, sort of foster that artistic quality of these productions? Or did Clive, other than giving notes, kind of stay out of things? He was very involved with Midnight Me Train and fighting for Midnight Me Train. It was him going to bat 
for those big battles with both Lakeshore and Lionsgate at the time. Um, and, and kind of defending Yuhei's vision of the movie and stuff like that. It was definitely, so depending on what movie, if it was his material, he would definitely go to bat for it, you know, hundred percent. Um, if there were issues and things like that. Right. How did Clive and, then, and, 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 and you, how did you guys feel with the film that got released and that people saw? Um, I don't remember. You know, I think like, I think Yuhei was pretty upset with the experience, um, you know, because that was his first like American film. And it definitely, the way that was handled, I think, you know, hobbled his career start. And I'm sure in a very frustrating way. And I don't really remember at the time what we felt about the movie that got released. Uh, I think we were more concerned that people weren't getting to see it. You know, see that it all, yeah. 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 Because yeah. it's a good, it's a good film. I mean, it had, you know, Vinnie 100%. Jones and Bradley, that they're all great in that movie. And it has some just awesome sequences. And Yuhei really put his stamp on that movie. Um, you know, it's a very unique kind of horror action film mystery. So, you know, I'm proud of that movie. It's definitely, we, we were definitely concerned about the title and there was a lot of back and forth if we were going to change the title for, re, for the release. Clive really wanted to stick with the Midnight Me Train title. I, I think if the movie had come out theatrically, that title would have hurt it a bit because it was, it was hard for mainstream audiences to kind of digest that title. <laughs> It was a little yeah. too aggressive. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when you because, like, I've I've just recently uh, read the books of blood, and it's like they're not like uh, Kleinsberg in general is not really what I would describe as like mainstream horror. You no. know, he's, he doesn't write slasher stuff, and like, it's not. And I'm curious, like at at that point when you were involved in working with Clive, like was there ever talk of him directing any of these films? Because I've never heard that mentioned. Um, probably. I mean, I I I knew like I always wanted to get Clive to direct again, and I think with certain studios, the conversation probably came up. I mean, it, I think it came up with Midnight Me Train at one point. Or like, um, what it definitely came up. Tortured souls. It definitely came up on that, um, but it didn't. He was so focused on writing at the time and painting with this Aberat stuff. It was really you're talking about years of time that it took when when he was really consumed by that world. Um, and he had deadlines, you know, deadlines kind of pressing down on him because it was going to be like a Narnia thing. It was supposed to be like, a, I think, a six book series originally. I think it got whittled down to four. So there was a lot of pressure on him at the time to write and create these paintings because these were oil paint. If you never looked at an Abra book, pick it up and go through it and you'll see it's illustrated by Clive. These paintings were huge. Some of the paintings were 20 feet long. 
Um, so they were no small undertaking, these paintings he, were, he was doing for the Aberrant series. So that's where most of his focus was going. I don't think he was really interested in directing. And also he had a lot of bad experiences on, on Nightbreed and, and, and Lord of Illusions. That he was I was going to say, you know, I, I wonder if his experience on Nightbreed was like, you know, I know that like Carpenter told me once after the thing that there was definitely a part of him was like, do I want to fucking do this again? Like, am I, you know, yeah. just, you know, it, it was like it took so much out of me when that went the way it did. Um, yeah. You know, and I can't help but think, you know, having seen now the version of the film that Clive was trying to make, you know, I, I love Nightbreed and I like Clive's version better. I do. But it's funny to see sort of the things that if you'd read the source material, if you knew who Clive was, it's crazy to me that they didn't know that they were signing up to make a Clive Barker movie and that they would try to change the things that they did. It's so strange. Well, I had, we had that experience on almost every movie we developed. And it was this weird, I think it is that, you know, not to say, not all executives are like this, but I think most of the executives just did not read the books. Mm-hmm. You know, it was more about like, oh yeah, Clyde Barker was a brand right at the time. And they were like, yeah, let's sign up. You know, they get a sense of what it is, but then when they really get down to the nitty gritty of the material, they were like, this is too out there. It's too mm-hmm. psychosexual. It's too Lovecraftian. It's too um, erotic or homoerotic. And they were like, no. This is too much. <laughs> yeah. Make a Stephen King movie, you know? Right. And not yeah. to not, you know, Stephen King is just much more accessible in his storytelling than yeah. Clive was. It's funny. You go back and you watch the, I saw, I remember reading a review for the version that Clive, of Never really Clive, you know, restored content to and stuff. And I'm assuming Clive was directly involved with that restoration. I don't know, but. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Right. Okay. So like, I, and I remember reading a review where one critic said, you know, you can kind of tell, you know, you're in sort of Clive Barker's world when you have this opening sequence of Craig Schaefer wandering around in his underwear and it's very homoerotic. And I remember being kind of annoyed by that. Cause I was like, wait a minute, why is it homoerotic? You could just easily play for women. Um, no, I don't. No, um, I know. You're like, yeah. <laughs> like what the hell? Yeah. I didn't, I didn't understand that response, but it is one of those things where you can sort of see that in, in a lot of, Clive's films is that sort of defanging of those of those aspects, right? Like the less prosumer stuff of, you know, his characters having or who are sort of sometimes gender like sexually fluid and all that. Like in a lot of the movie versions of his stuff, that's out the window. Yeah. Yeah. And that's too bad because that's what you know, that's what we often fought so hard to keep in, which is why a lot of these movies didn't get made. Is that you like, well, if you're cutting at the essence of it, then what's the point? You know, what's the point? Of, of making it. So that's, that brings me to sort of Dread, which was, you know, your first time directing. That's your very first directing credit. Is that, is, was that, the, is that correct? Though? Was that the first time you directed something mm-hmm. was on Dread? I mean, besides like college stuff, but like I had, right. I had never done shorts, you know, shorts, like legitimate shorts um, outside of school. Uh, so yeah, I just jumped into the feature stuff. Okay, so I'm gonna. Here's the synopsis off of IMDb for Dread. Three college students set out to document what other people dread the most. However, one of these three turns out to be 
secretly a sadistic psychopath who uses this knowledge to gruesomely torture the subjects. It's about right. It's about yeah, it's about right. I guess I don't know who wrote that, but it's about right. <laughs> I mean, there's some of these are amazing. I always just take the synopsis as it is in IMDb because some of them are like user submitted. Some of them are yeah, wicked, like not what it is. But that one's pretty. <laughs> good. Um. Um. So you, the development of Dread was that like? Did you kind of go through the books of blood and go, "Hey, Clive, I want to do Dread," or how did that sort of come into your into being the project that you were going to direct first? So Dread was at in development at Fox for several years, and we had uh, several different groups of great writers and directors on that movie, and it was just one of those. Um, you know, Eli Roth came in and pitched on Dread as one of the, he was like one of the earliest pitches I remember on that movie. Um, and we had several people that got hired, got paid, got, you know, attached to direct and, and it just never got off the ground because they wanted to turn it into this PG 13, like kind of flatliners type movie. Uh, and it just never worked, you know, with the studio. So then when the rights reverted back to us, we were, doing the Naimi train and I had already written pig blood blues to be done and I was going to direct it, but I loved dread. I was always kind of obsessed and knew it so well because of the development. So many years of development, I could recite almost every word from that movie, that story. Um, so when it came back to us, I was like, this is a strong property. We should do it up front. And like, I want to take a stab at the script and, and direct it. I think I had such support from that team by then that they were like, yeah, you should direct this movie, which was mm-hmm. a dream, you know, like you don't often get an experience like that, but I had like put in my time at the studio with the producers. And I think because my sentiments were so close to Clive we knew there wasn't going to be a clash creatively between like what I want to do and what Clive's vision was and, and Clive's source material. So, you know, when I adapted that into the screenplay, I wanted to, I'm like, how can I stay true to this story? It's themes, it's major set pieces, but add to it in a more cinematic way and, and also a feature way. Cause the short story is only, I don't know, like 30 or 40 pages. Um, so that was that process. And when you, you know, you talk about the, the short story is only like 40 pages. So, you know, you got to take that 40 pages and distill that into a feature length script. Um, what was sort of the process of adapting the short story to the feature length version for the screenplay? Um, you know, I think I was very like in tune with Clive's voice at that time. And just wanted to bring in, I think my own life experiences into that character. You know, I was also age appropriate, you know, just not too far out of college still was tied to that voice of those kind of angsty characters and knew that I wanted to do Quaid justice as a character and expand on 
um, the Stephen character, which Jackson played. And uh, Laura Donnelly played the Abby character who was not in the short story because I wanted to bring in another representation of dread, kind of this visual representation that would be good for the film. With the birthmark. With the birthmark, yeah. And like a character that had to deal with something like on their face and what that felt like every day. Um, So that's really, I think, how I got into it um, and brought a lot of, because I was in a car accident at a young age, like a pretty severe car accident when I was 16. I had a Mustang when I was in that accident. It wasn't the same Mustang, but it was a Mustang. And like, I brought all those elements into the movie. So it was a pretty personal experience. Right. When you were writing this script, like, were you sending drafts off to Clive for notes or sort of what was Clive's, you know, process with you to develop yeah. the script? All three, like, um, it would have been Clive and Joe Daly and Jorge Saralegi, who was the other producer involved with the Midnight Picture Show. They were, you know, definitely involved in the notes process along the way of writing the feature and kind of giving, you know, kind of shaping it and stuff like that. I don't, I don't remember how long that went on for. I remember I was working on a draft when we were shooting Book of Blood in Scotland. I was there writing and then kind of going back and forth to the set while we were shooting that. What was, what was um, like, for Clive with the source material from his short story, like, was he precious about that at all when you were developing or did he kind of let you just go do your own thing? Yeah, he was never very precious about his source material. Like he would fight for the movies, but he was never very precious in the development. Because I think Clive was always like, he was one of those writers that was always like, well, what's the new idea? What's the new thing? Mm -hmm. You know, he was like, I already did that. You know, I don't, you know, let these filmmakers, let the writers or the directors kind of really explore it. You know, and with that said, though, like, doing bastardizing it in development at a studio would often cost, you know, like problems for all of us. Like, well, that's not the story. You know, that would be something Mm -hmm. he would, that would drive him crazy for sure. So you say you shot the film in England. I read online that you it was shot in England and then there things shot in Boston. So what was, where was the crux of the shoot? Was that in England In Surrey? I believe it was. It was in England. Yeah. I didn't even go to the U.S. I did not even go to Boston to shoot. I was in post. We had a, a second unit team go to Boston and shoot and B-roll stuff, but there was no cast that was there. It was all B-roll. Okay. So yeah, the, whole, Clive... the whole shoot was in, in the U.K., kind of the country at a university primarily. Okay. So all you guys went out there and shot it, like Clive and Joe and everybody was there on location with you, or were they still back in L.A.? No, they were all on location. Clive was back and forth because he would come out for like Book of Blood and then go back to LA and then come out for, you know, he'd come out like two or three times for each production um, and visit and and kind of put his stamp on it when he'd come down. But it was, you know, once we were in that phase, you know, the script was done. It was like we were shooting. It was mainly in post that like he get to be more involved again you know once the 
and you know, and they were watching dailies and things like that. But we were all there together in the UK. Did you like shooting in the UK? Did it, did sort of did you find any sort of stark contrast now that you've shot so much more in the states to shooting in the UK? I mean, I loved being there and shooting. It was a good experience. Um, I was there for a long time on Dread. I was there for like a year, um, and that got tough to be. There's you know, there's not a lot of sun in 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 London, and so you like you're kind of like sun deprived coming from Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I would, I flew back for a test screening of dread. I was literally in LA for less than 24 hours. And it was like a 12 hour flight, 20 hours in LA. And then a 12 hour flight back. It was, a, it was tough, but, but that's how it was when we were in post. And you shot uh, Books of Blood out there as well? We shot Books of Blood in Scotland, and that was before Dread. Oh, in Scotland. Okay. It was, gotcha. I, I think it was 100% um, in Scotland. I don't know if we shot any in, in London for that. I think it was all Scotland. So so by the point that you, like, so you developed the story, you guys go out to the UK, the, all the casting was done primarily in, in California. You flew out the cast, or did you, because I, I know that, like, the... Um, you know, there's some. There's a few cast members who I was like, I wonder if they're Brits. Like, uh, what what portion of the cast was local hire, and what was what was the American actors? Pretty good amount. I mean, on on um, Dread, I like Jackson was American. You know, he flew in, and then uh, the actress Hannah Steen, who played Cheryl. She was American, but she was already living in the UK. Um, and Laura is Irish, and Sean, who played Quaid, is English. I had some other people fly out who were like friends who did like smaller parts. Um, but the prime most of the cast is is local hires, you know, in on that movie. And especially on Books of Blood. I don't think there were besides um I'm trying to think of any of the casts on books of blood were no i don't think there were any americans in books of blood yeah because doug bradley was like probably in the he's states English. but he's not american <laughs> yeah 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 i i don't yeah i don't know where he was at the time but he you know he could he, he would count as a local hire um right because yeah. I think he had residency in in the UK, but um, but yeah, but that's how it was the casting process, and we had talked about other people bringing other people in, but it just kind of worked out that way. And so for casting, did you like uh, like let's look at like Jackson? Like, did he did he come out and audition, or did you just sort of you know did you was he someone that you guys went that he would be great? Like, how did he end up in the project? He, uh, we had casting in the States, um, going on and he had, uh, he had auditioned, I believe, or, or maybe, I don't know if he was an offer, you know, it was like, we, we had talked about, we had our casting director, like doing auditions and, and she had brought up a handful of names and we liked Jackson a lot and had, I, I can't remember if we had offered it to him or, 
or if he had come in and read forward. But either way, he he was a standout for the he was had a quality about him that was um a little edgy, you know, a little different than than you know, playing trying to because you could easily hire someone that was kind of like bookish or more mm-hmm. like an introvert. And he was definitely introverted, but he was more like a like a crazed Tim Burton type character. Yeah, I, I you know it's funny, I was watching the movie just like a couple days ago, preparing for this. And I had seen Dread because when it first came out, I think I was in Toronto and it screened somewhere here and you sent me the details and I went on, I watched it and then I saw you in California not too long after I remember that. And um Yeah. But Jackson's really good in it. It's a really good performance. Yeah. Yeah. He really is. It's he but plays I was, that part. I was really curious well. about the Yeah, he nails it. And like the only thing that was a few times I was like, is that a wig? Is that is he wearing a wig in that movie? No, that's his hair. That's his hair. I don't think wow. we would have put him in that hair, you know, intention like that was his hair at the time. <laughs> um it was just kind of crazy. <laughs> and that's what I mean yeah. by Tim Burton. It was. I mean, like he he almost had like a Tim Burton haircut going on. But he was, yeah. you know, I think it added to the fact that he was like a film student and, and things like that. Yeah, well, it's, it's just that's just sort of the eccentricity of that character. Because I was looking at it and I was like, you know, pause. And I'm like, is it a fucking wig or not? Like I couldn't. And then I couldn't figure out why he'd be wearing the wig. Yeah. It's like, why would we put him in that wig? Yeah, but, he, but he then I said to like my husband, I was like, "It's too weird to be his real hair," and he was like, "I don't know. I mean, why would he have a wig?" I was like, "I don't know. I have to just get asked." Yeah, <laughs> you know, unless he had like a shaved head or something, like, and we had to give him. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, throughout a lot of his career, his hair was kind of wacky. Like it, that's how it was in Twilight too. It was pretty unruly. Um, he he's got. Had he done hair Twilight hair, before but, Dread? Yeah. I can't remember when Twilight came out. He did. Yeah, he had done. He had done, yeah. I think, the first two already. So he was pretty popular at that in that era, you know, because I think in the second Twilight he had a pretty beefy role, um, and he was pretty pretty popular. You know, a lot of his fans were definitely seeking out the movie and stuff. I mean, it's funny because when you you know, I've, I've I read the the short story. Just, you know, I hadn't read it before, but I read in preparing for talking to you and it's pretty close. You know, there's changes, but but you're going to expect that when you take a short story and have to draw it out to being a feature like film. But yeah. I think it's pretty close. And I definitely think that you guys distilled that like the 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 meat, the meat of what that story is, I think, is all in the film. Um, yeah, I think, you know, that was to me. That the sequence that's like the climax of the short story, I, I, I think in the movie almost verbatim. And I really wanted to keep it intact. It's tough, too, because when you're watching the film, the character that uh, Sean Evans plays, the, the Quaid character, is sort of a tricky character in that like, he's sort of simultaneously sort of seductive, like a cult leader type character. But he's also fairly repellent at times, too. You know what I mean? And that's a tricky yeah, balance, yeah. both for you as a writer and director and then for the actor. Um, did you guys spend much time kind of working on that component of that character? Like, how do we land on the right side of, of, of balancing these two elements? We did. And I'm, you know, we did a lot of rehearsal for Dread um, with the, the cast. 
And, but I remember kind of being on set and finding, we really found his character. And I don't know if you remember the scene where he's with Laura Donnelly. He's with the, the Abby character with the birthmark in her room. And he's like trying to seduce her to come out with him for the night. Just come out, you know, come out. And that was really the scene where we found his character. It was, you know, very early on in the shoot process. Um, And we spent time on it and playing with both that. How is he going to be seductive and repellent at the same time? You know, uh, very crass. But I think in it, I think what it was was honesty. It's um, sincerity. He's a very sincere character, um, and I think he means everything he says, and he doesn't like fuck around with nonsense or niceties, and mm-hmm. that makes him seductive. That truthfulness makes him seductive, even if it's crass. And that was the balance. I think that was the, that was the in, um, you know, and I, 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 I was, there were parts of me in that character for sure. And I like the, some of the cast like kind of joked around about it on set because I was very forth. I was not the kind of person that would deal with like ice. I, I would lead with an icebreaker, you know, you know, I would try to chop through the bullshit as quickly as possible um you know with the like pleasantries of conversation and things like that you know i'd meet someone and if they had a scar on their face i'd be like how'd you get that scar on your face you know it's just this is just how i am <laughs> yeah yeah you know like yeah you know i just you know oh you're missing an arm how'd you lose your arm you know you you know were you born that way or you know because it's like what because to me it's and with that character it's not polite to like i don't consider it polite to bullshit like through that kind of stuff if someone has insecurities and that's what that character played on to me the easiest way to make someone secure about their insecurities is to just to talk about it very quickly i remember and say you know that's not a big deal to me yeah yeah, and let them know that you're not fucking around in terms of like pretending that you can't see something or something that's yeah. that they know is going to be on people's mind when they meet them. Yeah. Back to Quaid, I think it was always about that intention and and, and his mind in that movie because I do something that the the book doesn't do is the last scene of that movie I don't kill Quaid. I couldn't bear to kill Quaid. And I think the last scene of that movie really um, betrays his, his coda. You know, like Quaid being this guy who's really looking for an answer. And then he is really just um, playing it by ear in that in that movie you know he he's holding on to this coda but but two steps ahead he's playing it by ear and when you get to that last scene and and you know steven dies and he drags him down the stairs and he's like narrating about like what it means and then he opens the door and he's got cheryl there 
and which did not happen in the book. In the book, he you never quite know, but you believe him. I believe him when he says, I let her go. You know, I mm-hmm. let her go. And, you know, I, I held her captive and she served her purpose. She gave me what I wanted and I let her go. And mm-hmm. I believe it in the book. And in the movie, you know, I think he gets to this point, she serves her purpose. And he's like, you know, I'm not going to let her go because that would put me in jeopardy. I can't let her go. I'm not done with her yet. Mm-hmm. And when he opens the door and she's there and he's like, you know what? I can keep going with this. I think it's a, I think it shows that he's making it up as he goes along and that like he is his psychopathic side wins, you know, at the end of the day um, over this. Yeah, definitely kind of by the end of, yeah, by the end of the film, he goes from being a kind of character that's sort of got this battle going of, you know, fully succumbing to his evilness by the end of the movie, you're like, oh, no, this guy's irredeemable. Like, he's... Yeah. Like, when yeah. he's just like, eat this dead body, you're like, fuck this guy. He's a bastard. <laughs> fuck this guy. Um, it's one of the things, too, I was watching Sean Evans's performance in it, and it's a tough... It's a tough character. You know what I mean? Like, you're like, he has so much to juggle there, you know? And, like, the character, you know, can go from being, like, so manipulative to sometimes you're like so when he is sincere you're just questioning if he's playing the person like so it's he's kind of one of those characters that's really hard for the audience to trust i think um yeah Yeah. i was reading some reviews for the film and they were saying that it was sort of a tyler durden-esque character i was like did you did that ever occur to you that he was sort of tyler durden fight club-esque type of i mean probably i mean you know you mention it now and i don't i don't remember like if we talked about Tyler Durden, I don't remember if Sean and I talked about that character, but I think probably he's definitely that kind of character. You know, he's uh, in a lot of ways an anti-hero for a portion of the movie. You know, it's that kind of like, oh, this guy's got he's got something here. You know, like it's not all bullshit. And um, but then it's like goes off the rails. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I noticed too, sort of, you know, we were talking about Clive's material and sort of, you know, the early, the early, I think it's the first act that we only really kind of get a sense of this, but in some of the earlier scenes between Stephen and Quaid, there's almost this homoerotic undertone to some of those scenes. Was that something that you deliberately, and it is kind of in the source material. Did you want to make sure that stayed intact if you were going to be directing one of Clive's stories? Yeah, for sure. Cause, cause I thought, I always thought of, um, Quaid is very um, fluid, you know, se- like sexually fluid. And I don't even think if he, it was more about um, seeing how people reacted to his boldness, right? And it was that, there was definitely that between them. I, I think like, I think it, it made Jackson uncomfortable in a way, like he didn't read it in the material and which worked for the character, you know, in these scenes, which Sean very much did read into the material. But, you know, like if I'm writing a scene where the shower scene where he undresses and, and I don't remember if that's in the short story or if like there's a version of something in the short story, but, you know, when you meet people like that and if you're 
repressed to that, you know, it, 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 it has a, an effect, you know, if someone's like, so cavalier about it, like, oh, like I gotta take, I gotta take a shower. I'm just going to take off all my clothes and, you know, and, and just leave the curtain open and we're going to talk, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's one of those like boundary pushing moments. Right. Well, it's funny too, because there's, there's a version of that. There's a few different versions of that scene. You know what I mean? I was, where he gets into the shower and he's just sort of casually talking to him. You're like, there's a version where Jax's character doesn't react at all, as some men would. Some guys are used to be in locker rooms together in showers and they yeah. wouldn't think twice about that kind of thing. You know, but his character very deliberately and specifically kind of looks away and he kind of takes a curious peek up for a moment, but then he looks down again. And we see that he's not quite sure how to handle himself in that situation. Yeah, yeah. And that was like intentional, you know, of how that that character would play it that way, like Stephen was, Stephen was very bunned up, you know, that's part of his journey, right? When he gets in there into film school, and he has a, it's an also part. It's also part of the seduction of. He opens up a lot, and he starts to have sexual experiences that are are beyond his imagination you know at least at the time and 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 he does help i mean there's a point in that movie where you're like okay if you stopped it here jackson would be all the better yeah. steven would be all the better yeah for meeting this man you know <laughs> only if only if you press pause it does right it does yeah it doesn't quite follow that trajectory but yeah 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 i mean it's one of those stories too that's like it's tricky because on the one level um, you have this kind of arc for these characters of like, you know, Quaid, his arc is really just sort of coming into his own as a, as a antagonist, as a, you know, in the, in the beginning, there's not much of a feeling of conflict, but maybe he doesn't have the assuredness he, he seems to end with. It's almost like yeah. his blossoming into becoming the thing he is by the end of the film. Um, and for Jackson, it's sort of his trajectory is, you know, by like the halfway point, as you just described it, where he's sort of empowered and he, he, he is in a better spot. But then, of course, he starts the disenfranchising, of you know, realizing that that the Quaid isn't what he wanted him to be or what he thought he was going to be. Yeah. Um, and it's tricky, too, right, with a movie like that, where you're going to have these sequences that are like these sort of torture sequences and people going through these horrible things, you know what I mean? And like... Uh, um, to not have it turn into sort of just, you know, a, a gross out checklist or whatever. Um, you know, is that something you were cognizant of at an early stage with the materials? Like we got to make sure we figure out how it can not just be these set pieces. And... Yeah. To me, it was always a psychological thriller and it was never saw, you know, I mean, you can, you can look at dread and be like, Oh, that's like an early incarnation of, jigsaw right i mean like what what quaid does in in dread is not too far off what jigsaw does in saw and to me it was always this psychological thriller and i think audiences are always very polarizing on that movie because you know a lot of audiences don't like it when you promise one movie and give them something else and to me i i liked the reality of that of like, be careful who you meet 
you know, be careful how you treat other people. Because in reality, we just don't know. We don't know that person next to us. You know, you don't know their psychological state. You don't know what someone's capable of. And there's always this cautionary tale about who you kind of, how many people end up on Dateline because, you know, they get involved with the wrong people. You just don't know. And like when he meets Quaid Mm -hmm. in the alley and shares a cigarette with him, like that's the, you know, that's the moment. And, you know, to me, it was always this kind of psychological journey that turns dark and not everyone likes that. I think not everyone likes that. I think you promise, you promise some people like a promise of a certain kind of movie and they like don't want drama with their horror or they don't want horror with their drama. I, I mean, but to me, that's what dread was. It was, it's only Clive's only story at the time that didn't have anything supernatural in it. And it was a very I subtle was say story. That, yeah. Yeah, like it's a very subtle story until you get to the end. Yeah, I mean, having gone and read it now, it was like, it was an interesting thing to sort of see, you know, the, the process that it took from becoming a short story to this. But it, it does, you know, in some ways, it does feel sort of like an outlier in Clive's sort of canon of the kinds of stories he writes, or whatever. It's, it's not really, it feels like a Clive Barker story to me because it's his voice and it's his, you know, these yeah. kind of characters are characters that Clive writes. But it's you're right. It's not. It doesn't have any of the fantastical elements, which is very not Clive. No, it's like even in the movie, I introduced these almost supernatural elements to to fill out the psychology. Right? There's like having this Axeman character and this like boogeyman type character um, to kind of add an abstractness to it. Yeah, it's funny because when I was reading some of the reviews for the film. And there were people who commented on the axe murder character and, and, you know, how much they liked those scenes and the axe in the face. And it's great. You know, it's like slasher movie stuff and a decidedly not slasher movie. Um, yeah. Was that, was that, was that kind of, was that something that you thought like, going into, you like, this will be fun to do. We can go, we can kind of get a little bit of that in, in, in a movie that's decidedly not that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I wanted it to be violent at the start, you know, and it kind of introduced this monster for Quaid, you know, and in, in the original draft of the script, the script was pretty long. I mean, I cut, even we even shot, that was a, that was a learning experience of figuring out like my timing as a director, because we cut out like 45 minutes of that movie. Um, I had so much more footage and there was even a day on in production. I cut out a whole day. Cause I was like, I'm never, this is never going to go in a movie. And it was stuff that I, liked um but you know in, in in the first draft of the script you i opened the movie without knowing who that was if it was steven or if it was quaid and there was a question for the through the first act of like you didn't know who the boy was if it was steven or if it was quaid and that was a part of that kind of suspense of like okay well who's the Who's the one? Like, who's the guy in the alley that's the going to end up being the problem? Now, I want to make sure I get this right. Casadega, is that how you pronounce this? Yep, Casadega. Okay. It's a real is, place. Is it a real place? Yeah, it's a real place in Florida. in Florida. Yeah, we shot there. It's there like go. the biggest psychic community 
on the East Coast or something. Besides it, that, and there's one in New York that it was originated from. It's a, so, it's a weird, weird spot. Casadega, you did that one in 2011. So this is the IMDb synopsis for Casadega. A deaf woman who resurrects the ghost of a murdered young woman is forced by the spirit to, to a, to a, this is IMDb for you, of a serial <laughs> killer who turns his female victims into marionette dolls. Is that about, you, you think that's a fair assessment? It's a fair Except the Tua from the four, whatever. Yeah, yeah that's spelling. I also it's think it's a assessment. bit lackluster. It's a bit, it you know, someone could do better, but but that's someone it. could do better. Like we yeah. don't. I don't know who wrote that, but I, I don't didn't. know who writes who writes those IMDb <laughs> synopsis. Do you know? Well, I mean, a lot of times the movie will submit one, but then often it changes. I've seen that happen. Like someone submits, like like a fan submits one or something. I have no idea, but I've often seen like you know. You when you submit the movie, you'll like the producer will put one on, and then somehow it will become something more. I don't know something like more like that, like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the spirit to us uh, of uh yeah. Um, so you shot Casadega in Florida. In did you shoot it in Casadega? Parts of it. Yeah, we were like, we were in and around that area, but we shot in Casadega for only like a night because they're very, it's a very like private. It was the weirdest thing. Cause we drove, we scouted that location at like 6am and we have like a, a convoy of vehicles. So the convoy like enters this area and like no joke, everyone started coming out of their houses and walking onto their lawns. And it really is a very strange place because it is a psychic community. It's like they knew we were coming. <laughs> and and they have like a, a town kind of center, which is, I guess, I don't know. It's like the Casadega Museum or whatever. But all the houses are very kind of quaint and strange, but they all started coming out on their lawns. It's almost like kind of a carny community. Okay. And um, how many days did you shoot on the film? Um, Jeez, I think it was like, 20, 20 days. Not a ton. Yeah, not a ton. I mean, not not like uh, these movies now that are shooting like eight days and shit, but, but yeah, not <laughs> a ton. Um, so how did you get involved with, this, with the project? How did, how did it first sort of come into your line of sight? After I made Dread... Um, you know, you, you my my agent will send me scripts to read on a. You know, she either someone will submit something to her and say, "Hey, you know, we're interested in meeting Anthony for this," and that was like one of these projects, and that and I had been kind of writing my own stuff a lot. Mainly, it was mainly my stuff, and then like in the Clive world, and I got this script and I liked it a lot. It was like, it, it was like a. Um, not Silence of the Lambs. What is the... You know what I had? I even wrote this down. I was watching. I was like, this is like Psycho meets Tourist Trap. I don't know if you've ever seen Tourist Trap, but... I love Tourist Trap, yeah. Me too, me too. And, yeah. uh, you know, it has kind of this psycho thing with the kind of guy, you know, the mommy issues and the dress and all that. And then it has the tourist thing with the kind of marionettes, like the the sort of uh, the, the mannequin stuff. Yeah. Patients. That's and what it, it reminded me of. It had a cool element. It was like... It was... I thought I could put a stamp on it. You know, it's like a script has to have things. That I'm like, oh, this is good. And this is, you know, you kind of see it play out. And I really 
you know, it, what we shot, it obviously changes around, along the way, you know, for budget reasons, we did certain things, but I was drawn to it, you know, being from someone else's material. And those guys were from Florida and that's why they said it in Casadega and they came down to LA and we had met and talked to the Who project. The and it's Scott Poiley and Bruce Wood. And Scott is who I continue to collaborate on. But those same guys we made Missionary with um, right after we did, did Casadega. And then I did Last Shift with Scott. And Scott and I wrote okay. Last Shift together. So that was like the beginning of that relationship. And Scott, you know, I, I talk to all the time now, too. Um, and we've continued that. And we're working together now on this, this Last Shift kind of reimagining. Uh, right. But yeah, that was, that was, we, we got along and, and they hired me for the gig and, and then I spent a lot of time in Florida. The movie is a great cast. Like a lot. I mean, I think Kevin Alejandro is a vastly underrated actor. Yeah. Like, he's so great. And I remember when he, was it True Blood he was on? Yeah. It was True Blood. I remember when I'd see him on that, he always brought this like, just reality to the scenes he would do that, that was not really part of the fabric of that show, but he always just brought this quality to his scenes where I was like, this guy's really great. And he's great again in, in your film. And then of course, Louise Fletcher is always great. And um, she has a smaller part, but it was fun to see her pop up there. Did you, did you, um, did you cast her just kind of as a fun little wink, wink, nudge, nudge sort of thing? Because, or did she like, you know, get the casting bring and say, what about Louise Fletcher? We had talked, you know, I, we were looking for, you know, like a kind of some stunt casting for that role you know, bringing in, you know, a, a bigger actress or a well-known actress that that's, you know, has some iconic roles. And so Louise Fletcher, her parents are deaf. And we thought that would be a nice connection for her. Like to, she could bring a lot, not only when she was on set that she, that the, it might connect with her in some way. Um, so she ended up saying yes. And it, it's, it's cool. Cause her and Kellen, we're able to kind of sit down and talk about that. She like Kellen could pick her brain about kind of growing up with deaf parents and, and get some details like that. Was she someone that, uh, that you were a fan of prior to the film? Like you, I'm guessing you'd seen, you know, a lot of her, some of her great performances. Oh yeah. Yeah. And we talked a bit about once upon a time in America, right? Right. And, yeah, and, yeah. 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 But yeah. you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest and like, yeah, I mean, Louise Fletcher's an icon in, in terms of that era of film. Um, I like that in your movie, she's a lot, she's not the stern person that she is in so many films. I know, right? She always yeah. plays that kind of, that part. I mean, I guess she was kind of typecast in that way. Is she's she that pretty, way as a person? No, she's very easygoing and very sweet. I mean, she in who she was in Casadega, I think is a, a more, much closer to who she is in person, for sure. And right. And she was great. I mean, you know, I think, I think in a lot of ways she was like, what am I doing in Florida? You know, like having to travel down to Florida was, was like, you know, what am I doing here? And, and, but she, but you know, we, Scott's good about like going the extra mile to make someone of her kind of stature feel really comfortable. And she actually stayed in that, that mansion that we were shooting in. We were like, we set up this, this place for her that she could have like the whole place to herself. And she, she really liked it. It was nice. She has a cane. And is that, is that a prop or did she actually use a, a walking cane? She was using the cane. I believe at that time. 
Right. I'm I'm pretty sure that that was right. Hurricane. Okay. And what about um, Kevin Alejandro? Like, uh, how did did he audition, or did you guys just get sent him? Like, how did he get involved? Well, Kevin, number one, is awesome. I wish. And who knows, maybe I will work with Kevin. Kevin and I got along really well. We were very like similar in personalities. And we kind of just tortured Kellen all day long, um, <laughs> which was fun. But he he auditioned, and uh, the casting director was like, we were in LA auditioning. I think I met him when he came in and we talked. Yeah, he came in when he, he was, I was there in LA. I hadn't left yet when we were casting. And we got along really well. And yeah, he, in True Blood, he just brought a lot to that character. You know what I mean? He, yeah, he sure did. He yeah. really brought layers to it that like probably weren't on the page. And you could see that. He just had a lot of, you know, he he's a lot of depth when he, he kind of gets into a character. Yeah, and it's like, I've seen him in other things too where there's some, he's got, he's just got his, his presence, you know, his gravity as an actor. He's, there's, there's nothing airy about him. He feels, you know, substantial. Um, and, 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 you know, his scenes in, in, in your film in Casadega, the scenes he has with Kellen Coleman um, were just like the, the dr- dramatic scenes that they had together were some of my favorite scenes in the entire film. Like, I mean, you know, it's a horror film and yet there is these dramatic scenes between the two of them that were really, you know, touching and they were so great and committed. And, um, you know, and I also noticed like for you as a, you know, ostensibly, I guess, you know, I'm sure you don't define yourself as a genre filmmaker, but you've done a lot of genre work. Um, or maybe you do. I, I mean, I mean, do you define I mean, yourself as a genre filmmaker? I mean, probably. I mean, I like, yeah, I, okay. I'm not one of those genre filmmakers. Cause I, you know, I know people who are like, this is all I do and this is all I want. Right. I'm more like, no, I, I like to, yeah, I direct a, you know, I make a movie like Brokeback Mountain if I, you know, got the right script, it, uh, which is like one of my favorite movies. I I love all movies, so <clears throat> so genres really not bound to that, right? When I when white and like when my wife and I right now we do we're like doing like family kind of family adventure stuff and things like that. So, and in my and before I directed Dread, I was doing family stuff at Walden, which was darker, but it was like family. We had a project about Edgar Allan Poe that Clive was a producer on and that I wrote. It was very much what Goosebumps ended up being almost identically years later, which makes sense. Like when you're trying to make, how do we make a movie about an author? You know, and like very similar, but. Right. Though I I suppose a Poe movie I could see being a little more pitch black than an Arnold Stein movie. It was, you know, it was light because it was, was meant it? to be a, it was the kid, the cast were kids. Um, so how did, how did, how would you approach that? Though? Like you got posters like telltale hard and guys getting bricked up in the wall and all this hitting the pendulum. Like these are pretty grisly stories. How do you get around that for kids? It was about him and his, I, I mean, I, I still really love it. Um, you know, the, the quick thing is it's about like, you know, Poe has a lot of mysteries about how he died and like all these, if you deep dive on the kind of, um, these conspiracy theories about Poe and his life and his love. And I just dived into that side of it and it's contemporary. So it was this girl who, who essentially 
comes into a town and she realizes her history is tied to this woman who was there when Poe died. And it had to do with a curse and and she finds a way that brings his stories back to life. And they find out that Poe is actually still alive and that he's like living underground. Like oh, the, wow. Is it ever similar? Huh? Yeah. Like he's, he's like, yeah, kind of like um, the mask of the red death. It, it's interesting because it's like we, I, I took that mask of the red death inspiration and kind of took it where the fan of the opera took it, how they use that as right. inspiration and then came back around. I made Poe, this guy living in the sewers and he like comes out in this red death costume and, you, it's like a twist that he's still alive, and, and um, but it's it's a big love story because it ties back to him. It's uh, yeah, it, it wasn't very dark. The dark things were about his tales coming to life, but okay. in a way that's appropriate for like fourteen year olds, young folks. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, and you know, it's interesting because like watching your work, you know, to prepare for you. I mean, I'd, I've seen most of your films prior to, to you coming on the show, but I, you know, went back through and watched it to make my notes. And Lies! Stuff. It's something, I swear, I did. <laughs> I wouldn't remember half this shit if I had. I don't remember um, half this shit. I know, that's the, that's that's why I'm hoping we can sort of ignite sparks of memory. That's the problem. With these little, one of us, you know, had to make notes here. Um, <laughs> that's the problem, yeah. Um, but I noticed in, in you know in your in your 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 horror films at least that, that there's these scenes like like the one I was talking like the ones I was talking with Kellen Coleman and, and Kevin Alejandro that where you kind of let things slow down for a bit and let characters exist in the world you've created and they get to talk to each other and 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 they're not necessarily just driving the plot forward and they're not just you know doling out exposition and you know I think it's a really kind of cool thing to see because so many genre films don't do that. Right. Sure. I mean, if there's time, you know, there's not time taken for those moments. And I think of like, you know, uh, things like Chinatown where like there's there's these moments in Chinatown where Polanski will just let characters live in that world. And Polanski's really good at that. And and, um, you know, I, I you seem to do that quite a bit in your films. Is that you know, is, is that something that you're sort of aware of? Or do you think that's just sort of a, an instinctual thing you have as a director to want to let your characters, you know, breathe a bit? Yeah, I think so. At least like in in those early days and after coming off of Dread, I think there are these, what it interested me about these movies and why I was drawn to Casadega in general from the offset is it wasn't just like a horror film. You know, it's not, it wasn't, there was a lot of drama involved and there was a lot of layers to the characters to play with and it had an emotional thread that pays off in the end. And um, I like movies like that a lot. I liked The Sixth Sense a lot because of that. The Sixth Sense, when I first saw it, I, I, yeah. I saw The Sixth Sense under perfect conditions. It was a test. It wasn't a test screening. It was a preview screening. I was living in, you know, it was Boston. I had no I, any idea. that this is the, the trailer for that movie made it look like a, a straight horror film. You know, it wasn't a very good trailer. Went and saw that movie. I was blown away. Like I was like, "Holy shit!" Like, and if you don't didn't see that movie in its purest form, you know, it had such an emotional ending. Like Bruce Willis. Oh man, I remember. Yeah, when I saw that movie, no, I didn't see it like a test, but I, I, I just I, for whatever reason, I, I, I hadn't heard a ton about it, and I remember seeing it, and there was that scene with Tony Collette and Halle Joe Osment in the car. Yeah, really emotional, and I was like tearing up. Oh yeah, I can't. You know, there's very few genre films that I can ever think of having 
the kind of emotional values that the sixth sense had. Yeah. And I've always thought that that was the real strength of that film. You know, the horror, it, it has great scares for sure. And of course, the ending was epic and all these things. But I think the reason that movie holds up still to me when I watch it with all the secrets of it kind of spoiled by now is is the emotional value. Yeah, totally, that, totally, yeah. Because the twist you can only have once, right? And it, but it, it, to me, it's like, it's what happens before it, and after that twist that matter. It's the, it's the, it's those emotional, mo- emotional resolutions. And then what's great is you get to see it with Tony Collette and Haley Joe Osment not realizing you're about to get another one with Bruce Willis. And that, and it's like, and I mean, he really sells that ending so well. Um, but that was what, that's probably my, I feel like that's my favorite Bruce Willis performance. I think I was thinking yeah. about it, of course, cause you know, I don't know when people will hear this, but like Bruce Willis has just sort of stepped away from the business because he's having health problems and stuff. And, and I was thinking about, you know, for so many people would be things like die hard and, and he's great in all those things, but I always think of him from Sixth Sense where he's quiet and there's this soulful quality to that performance that, you know, I just, we didn't, like, he's he's so, he's so touching in that film. Yeah. And that, um, that was like in his resurgence phase, right? After like Pulp Fiction, it was like when he was really like, oh, he, that's when his career got that like second or third win, what it was where he was like an A-list again. And that, in that phase of, yeah, my, like my wife is a diehard, diehard fan. Um, and you know she makes me watch it every christmas but i was never like a huge like yes die hard like but you know, this right. him in the sixth sense is he's just so good in it You've been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane, produced by Jason Hill, and edited by Felipe Ojeda. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. Original artwork and design elements generously provided by Matthew Terrian. Spill Your Guts is only made possible by the support of listeners like you. And the most important thing you can do to ensure that these amazing interviews keep coming is to simply get the word out. You can find us on Facebook by searching Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts, Instagram at all one word, Spill Your Guts underscore podcast, and Twitter at Spill Your Guts underscore one, as in the number one. Be sure to post, comment, share, and like, but don't forget, good old-fashioned word of mouth still goes a long way. And the best way you can support what we do is to just tell people about us. Friends, family, co-workers, whomever. Anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for guts. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>